Welcome to First Fiction, the podcast dedicated to showcasing notable new fiction published on Verso.inc. Verso.inc is a new online community for discovering and sharing great fiction. Our mission is to help discerning readers discover the best new fiction and assist emerging authors in growing their audiences. First Fiction features selected works distinguished as noteworthy by Verso.inc moderators. Keep listening and you might discover something you love. Thank you for joining me today on First Fiction. I'm your host, Karen Hahn, and I have a real gem of a story to share with you today. The Shark Waves Back by Christopher Jones features a character with a fascinating perspective on life. It's an empathetic tale about one of my favorite themes, connection, and it's all the more impressive considering that it was one of our Verso.inc prompt challenge submissions and written under a tight deadline. I had a chance to visit with Chris, and if you keep listening after the story, you'll hear that interview. Here's The Shark Waves Back by Christopher Jones, read by the author. For an aquarium, there sure was a lot of concrete and metal everywhere, Norman thought. Maybe if they spent more money on fish and less on infrastructure, they'd be more financially viable. The archway above the entrance loomed over the trickle of incoming guests, a rusting frown that said Whitefall Aquarium in off-white against flaking sea blue. His wheelchair thumped over the pitted asphalt of the parking lot, rubber wheels jouncing, clacking his teeth together. Sorry, Norman, his mother said. It smooths out once we're inside. She patted his shoulder. Norman wanted to tell her it was okay, but in the din of the parking lot, she would never hear him clearly enough, so he said nothing. She was wrong, though. The concrete ramp up the sloping bridgeway that led from the parking lot to the big tanks was rutted as well, cracking concrete flaking off underfoot, or under wheel, in his case. To the right of the entrance, gaily colored fish darted back and forth in a large tank. Norman jerked his arm up. His hand flailed. He kept it up twice, three times, his muscles spasming and throwing his hand around like a normal person would wave a handkerchief. Are you waving, Norman? His mother said. He likes to wave to the fish, she explained to the two teenagers, tagging along a couple of paces back. Norman couldn't see them, but he knew they were there, Charlotte and Mackenzie, his babysitters, his minders, his support staff. Mom wanted to get to know them and have them get to know him before they took over the duties of watching him six or seven hours a day. Norman paid them no attention. He would not have, even if he could have craned his neck over the wheelchair's high padded seat to see them back there giggling to each other, but he couldn't. A line of drool rolled down a cheek. He slapped at it with his waving hand, not that it would do any good, but his mother would see and wipe it off. Oh, Norman, let me get that, she said, reaching down with a cloth. A wide brown enclosure with fake rock and real water sat under the bridge, poking out where Norman could see it. He waited until Mom cleared herself from in front of him, then he waved at the seals. They vaulted themselves off the slick rocks and into the water. They did not notice the small teen boy in the wheelchair, whose arms didn't work right. The seals are happy to see you, Mom said, though Norman knew they weren't, because they didn't. It's not feeding time for a while. Shall we come back? Norman said yes. 
He knew it sounded like a moan, a low-pitched howl shoved out of his constricted throat through his twisted mouth. But Mom knew what it meant, which was as good as speaking. Did you understand him? Mom said to one of the girls, or both of them. They trotted into view on Norman's left. No, ma'am, one of them said. That was yes, Mom said brightly. He wants us to come back for feeding time. Oh, said Mackenzot. It didn't matter which. Obviously daunted. Mom pushed off again, the two rookie minders trailing in her wake. Understanding him isn't too much of a problem. He's very smart. He can talk, too, though it, it takes some work to figure out what he's saying. You'll get used to it. Norman waved at the tank of electric eels as they entered the small fish building. It was cooler in here and dark, most of the light coming from within the fish tanks themselves. Most of them were smallish, no bigger than the window of a house, blue-white light illuminating their interiors with fish of every kind and description living their hopeless little lives behind panes of glass. Lining the bottoms of their cages was rock of a color no rock in nature ever had. Artificial, the whole of it. Did they know? Do you feel trapped? Norman thought. Do you look out onto this huge other world with beings walking and talking and moving as they choose, in and out, and think, why can't my life be like that? Why am I stuck inside this tiny shell and no one understands what I want? Not really. Norman waved to the betta fish and the clownfish and the tiny squid and the ram chicklid and the green swordtail. They bobbed and rocked and dove, sporting themselves as well as they could inside their two-foot-by-three-foot-by-two-foot enclosures. He really likes to wave, doesn't he? The brunette teen said, stepping forward into Norman's view, which blocked the freshwater angelfish. Norman waved anyway. Mom said, he certainly does. We don't pass a tank, but he waves to the fish in it. Why does he do that? Ask him, Mom said. Norman couldn't see her up behind him, but her voice had a smile in it. She likes this one, Norman thought. The teenager got right down in front of him, taking up most of his view. Norman's head was twisted up and to his right, so he could really only see her with one eye, but she was tall and willowy like a young tree, and her eyes were green. She swallowed and kept looking away from his face, but she said, Norman, why do you wave to the fish? She didn't really want an answer, did she? She was just buttering up Mom so she could get the job. It's an involuntary reaction, Norman said. The palsy makes my muscles contract, so my arm shoots out like this. It's stimulated by the bright colors of the fish. Really, I have no control over it. What came out of Norman's mouth was a long series of moans rising and falling in pitch. Once or twice, Norman found his saliva pooling at the back of his throat and had to swallow it to keep going making a pause of a second or two in his speech. He wound down and stopped, but he kept his eye on this girl. Did you understand that? Mom said. She flushed a little. She had enough feeling to be able to blush. That was interesting. Which one of these was this one again? No, Mrs. Catiline, I'm sorry, the girl said. Mackenzie, how about you? Mom said. She had to turn her head to say it. Norman could hear the sound change. I'm sorry, I wasn't listening, Mackenzie said. That made this one, the brunette one, Charlotte, like in the E.B. White classic. 
Charlotte was a spider, but not the kind that tickled Norman's skin when it walked across him, the kind that talked and wrote literature, one word at a time. Mom said, that was one of his longer speeches. He must really have wanted to tell you the answer to your question. Charlotte unbent to talk to Mom. What did he say? I'm not entirely sure, Mom said, sounding just a shade embarrassed herself. Something about the fish and their colors and how his arm moves. Like I told you, he's very smart. He knows a lot of things. Norman shivered. The room was too cool for him. His body didn't generate enough heat through movement the way everyone else's did, and he got chilled easily. Mom, ever watchful for signs like this, said, Norman, are you cold? Norman said yes. Charlotte bent down and said right to Norman, That was yes, wasn't it? Do you want a blanket? Norman was too startled to answer, but he tried to twist his body back so he could see her with both eyes. It took four or five seconds. In the meantime, Mom unzipped the pack on the rear of the chair and took out a blanket. She handed it to Charlotte, who tucked it in around Norman's legs. Mom pushed the wheelchair up a long, curving ramp covered in threadbare carpet toward the doors to the outside. The last tank on the right, just before the doors, was a little larger than the others, maybe five feet long. Norman waved the fish inside, especially the blue tang he always thought of as Dory. Dory didn't have any problem talking, but she couldn't remember things. Kind of the opposite of my problem, Norman thought. We would make a great team. They passed into the bright noon sunshine. The pitted walkway stood about 20 feet in the air and led to a wide, sloping area with concrete benches set in a semicircle facing a huge tank, the biggest in the aquarium. The benches were empty today, looking a little sad and forlorn. A sign at the entrance ramp said, Exhibit Closed, along with a lot of other fine print Norman couldn't read. Mom went over and looked closely at it. The dolphins aren't performing anymore, she said. That's a shame. Norman loves the dolphin exhibit. Norman's heart sped up a little. No more dolphins? That might be because of the animal activists, or maybe the decaying aquarium couldn't afford to keep them anymore. What if the other large fish exhibits were closed, too? The anxiety made Norman's body twist away from his chair, his back bowing out and shoving his head back against the headrest. He tried to stop it, but the more effort he put into controlling his body, the less control he had. His left arm shot out rigid and his right shoved uselessly against the black padding of the chair. Mrs. Catiline, Mackenzie said from off to the left out of Norman's sight, something's wrong with Norman. Mom looked back and worry crossed her face. Oh, Norman, it's the dolphins. He's disappointed. She rushed over and took gentle hold of his arm, helping turn him back so his body was sitting square in the chair again. Charlotte crouched next to her. Does this happen a lot? Not often. He's very good at controlling himself, but sometimes the body gets into this feedback loop and he goes rigid. We just need to help him be calm. If you want me to be calm, Norman thought, get me to the large fish, if they're still there. They have to be there. Charlotte reached out and stroked the side of Norman's face. It's okay, Norman. Everything's going to be fine. Norman's face tingled and wild shocks traveled up and down his spine. She was touching him. Well, of course she was touching him. She'd have to do that all the time as his minder, but this... She was touching him. Actually, him, his face, not to clean something up, but like a person touches another person. 
like a girl touches a boy. He went almost limp. His arm came down with a whack and his body unclenched, settling back into the chair. For a moment, his face relaxed and he could look at the two of them, Charlotte and Mom, looking concernedly at him, judging what was wrong and what needed to be done. Mackenzie's round face was a few feet behind them, a look of horror underneath a pasted-on smile that looked like an animal had died. Well, Mom said, that was certainly a quick one. She gave Charlotte an appraising look. I like Charlotte, Norman said. Charlotte smiled but glanced at Mom. Mom said, he's feeling better now. She patted his arm. Norman said it again as clearly as he could. That's good, Norman, she said. I think he said he likes the aquarium, Charlotte said. He certainly does, Mom said, especially this next exhibit. They wheeled him into a large elevator and pushed the button for the ground floor. The ancient machine groaned and creaked as the floor moved downward, but its gears did their job and the door opened onto a tiered amphitheater. Each tier was wide enough for the wheelchair and fronted with steel railings, painted white, so the viewers could lean against them while they took in the show. And what a show it was! The large fish exhibit showed no sign of the decrepitude of the rest of the aquarium. The paint gleamed. The carpet was new along the tiers, and at the front, about fifty feet wide, was a gently curving set of glass panels, twenty feet tall, and behind them, in the rich blue of the aquarium's saltwater tank, swam the large fish. Swaying fronds of kelp, like hula dancers in the current, provided cover for the smaller residents of the exhibit. Colorful and various, they darted in and out, seahorses, spot, bluefish. Behind them, dark shapes cruised. A manta ray chose that particular moment to swim by, fins undulating. Norman waved. Norman waved at the sawfish. He waved to the stingrays embedded in the sand at the bottom of the tank. He waved at the grouper in pairs, diving and rising. His arm shook as if he were trying to detach his hand. Mom took him right down onto the floor of the amphitheater, a few feet from the glass where he could see the animals up close. I'm going to get us some drinks, Mom said. Would you two watch Norman for a minute? They said they would, and the moment Mom was out of sight, Mackenzie pulled out her cell phone and started texting. Good thing this job pays well, she said. You ever had a job working with special needs kids? Charlotte said, her eyes on the blue expanse in front of her. Never, and I wouldn't now, except I need the money. Gives me the creeps. Charlotte glanced down at Norman. Hey, she said, he's right here. He's a person, you know. Mackenzie looked up from her phone for just a second, and for the first time that day, let her eyes actually rest on Norman. Not like us, he isn't. His mom says he's really intelligent, but did you hear her talk to him? She knows there's nobody in there. She went back to her phone. Norman was stung. Mom loved him. Yes, no doubt of it. But Mackenzie was right. Mom read the surface of the water, but she didn't know all that lurked beneath. Still, it was a mean thing to say, and Norman thought a demonstration was in order. Norman waved some more, a little harder. A dark shape detached itself from the deep blue behind the glass and glided forward, circling to the left, clockwise around the circular tank. I think his mother is right. I think Norman is very intelligent. He knows a lot more than you're giving him credit for, Charlotte said. You can't know that after part of an afternoon, Norman thought, but I'm glad you're making an effort. 
This next part won't go so bad for you, and I'll enjoy it when you come over. Here he comes, Norman said. Charlotte looked down, saw that Norman was waving, and tracked his eyes. Her face changed, her mouth forming an O. Yes, he is, isn't he? she said. Who are you talking to? Mackenzie said, tapping her phone, her back to the glass. Norman, he's calling his friend. Norman's wave was so energetic it could have doubled as a fan on a hot day. He doesn't have friends. He's a vegetable. Nope. Animal. Very definitely animal. Involuntarily, Charlotte stepped back half a pace from the glass. Mackenzie desultorily turned one eye toward the aquarium. She shrieked and dropped her phone, jerking backward and stumbling over the footrests on Norman's chair. She tumbled to the ground in a heap, scuttling backward on her hands like an overturned crab. Filling more than half the length of the glass was a huge shark, a monster right from a horror film nightmare. Its mouth was right about where Mackenzie's head would have been. Hello, my friend, Norman said. The whale shark's lidless eye turned on Norman and his fins waggled. You look well. Thank you for coming to see me, Norman said. The shark cruised a tight circle, impossibly tight for such a massive creature, and came back to Norman. No, I don't like her either. The shark fins rippled. It swam off, but turned and charged straight at the glass. Mackenzie gave a little yelp and sought the safety of the first tier. Charlotte said, She doesn't understand you, does she? Her eyes were round, but her mouth turned up a little at the corners. She spoke in the direction of the shark, but Norman knew better. No. There's much more to you than people see, isn't there? Yes. You're locked in a space too small for you. You're meant for more, and you can't get out, or even tell people all there is that you know. The shark cruised by again. Are you sure that thing's safe? Kenzie said from twenty feet back. Norman said, it's a whale shark. It's not dangerous. It doesn't eat annoying teenage girls. Charlotte glanced back. Whale sharks don't eat people. They aren't dangerous. They're just misunderstood. As long as they were there, which was quite a while, the whale shark never left the glass for more than a moment. It had lots of company. Other sharks glided by regularly, and each whipped his fins in greeting. He certainly loves this exhibit, Mom said, returning with four tall, slushy lemonades. It's funny. I tell people about the large fish exhibit, and they tell me it's boring. The really big fish never come to the glass when they're there, but they always come for us. I don't know what it is. Finally, Norman's arm was tired. He laid it in his lap. Time to go home, he said. Time to go, Charlotte said. Norman, can I push you? Yes, Norman said. They made their way past the incoming crowd up the carpeted ramp to the elevator. Mom and Mackenzie went through the open door onto the metal floor, their footsteps ringing. Charlotte paused at the doorway and shifted the chair for Norman to have one more look. He waved. The shark cruised by once more and, flicking his tail, was gone. The shark waves back, Charlotte said very softly. Norman made a barking noise like a seal. Mom cocked her head to the side. What's funny, Norman? She looked at Charlotte. He almost never laughs. What did you say to him? It wasn't me, Charlotte said, rolling the chair forward. The door slid closed behind her. It was his friends in the water. She bent and tucked his blanket around him, pulling it up across his chest, but leaving his left arm free. Is that good? 
she said, checking his eyes. Yes, Norman said. He wasn't so hard to understand. I left your arm free, Charlotte said, her smile crooked, the way one friend smiles at another when they know something no one else does. So you can wave. It's so good to welcome Chris Jones back to First Fiction. Welcome, Chris. Nice to be back. I'm excited about it. Yeah, it's it's always so good to, we always enjoy getting your work on Verso, and I really particularly enjoyed this piece, The Shark Waves Back. But before we get into that, can you just introduce yourself again for our listeners? Sure, absolutely. Um, my name's Chris Jones. I go variously by Christopher J.H. Jones, which is my uh, for my fiction name. Um, I've been writing professionally for the last five years, approximately. Um, that's when I really got serious about it. I teach junior high, high school, and college. I'm a professor of logic, rhetoric, and writing. Uh, I write short stories, novels, um, series, fiction, nonfiction. That's great. And let's talk then a little bit about The Shark Waves Back, because that's a story that you did in response to one of our prompt challenges, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. And I sh- was going to look up which which challenge it was, and I forgot to, so I don't know if you remember off the top of your head. Um, I, I think it was a challenge about seeing something from a different perspective, if I remember mm. correctly. Yeah, I I don't remember either, but but I do remember it. That you know, this is a very unique uh, perspective. But but I loved the empathy with which you treated Norman, um, and not only his his disability, which of course is is going to be uh, affect his life greatly, but but also his abilities, and how much he was capable of of doing and and communicating and understanding about the world around him. I have been thinking about that for a long time, actually. When I was a young kid, um, I had a friend who had cerebral palsy. And um, I remember him being in a wheelchair and him being uncommunicative. And I remember, I don't it's one of those memories I can't believe is real because I can't believe that I would have been this perspicacious when I was a kid. Um, but I, I have this recollection of asking his mother, does he understand what I say? And she says, I think he understands everything you say. Mm. He just can't communicate back. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think I have never, I mean, obviously I haven't forgotten the conversation, but I don't think I've ever really had that get out of my head Um, There's so many different ways for us to have communications difficulties or um, uh, learning difficulties or whatever. There There are just so many. And in the 21st century, we've done, I think, a really amazing job of teasing those out and identifying them and then coming up with tactics, coming up with ways of helping, um, especially young people, but, but even adults as well, to find ways around that, to find ways to tap into the brilliances that 
are within them. Um, but I've always been fascinated by people whose ability to communicate um, with the world around them was interdicted in some way that was beyond their control. For instance, um, in, in this story, um, Norman is very much like my, my young friend when I was a kid. And I wondered what that would be like. What, it would, what would it be like to be trapped in a body that doesn't respond the way that you want it to, that doesn't respond in the way other people's bodies respond? I, I know what, that, what the reaction is from other people because I have it myself being a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you reach out? How could you reach out? And what would you be looking for in ways to, um, to let someone in? to be yeah. able to see who you really were. And, and I think that was kind of where that, um, the genesis of the piece in that way. That's great. Yeah. And I, I love the, uh, the difference there between Charlotte and Mackenzie hmm. and, and even just his feelings toward, you know, what does he call him at the <laughs> beginning? Like <laughs> Mackenzie or something. <laughs> I'm not even sure how you'd pronounce it, but to him, it doesn't matter. You know, they don't matter. Uh, but then as he has interactions with them, then he starts to differentiate, you know, and, and they do, it does matter who is who. And, and I look at Charlotte and, and her willingness to try and put her discomfort aside and, and connect with him. And I think as a reader, we all want to be Charlotte, Mm. Yeah, but so often sometimes we're more Mackenzie, (laughs) Yeah, you know? uh, that, sure. That that happens a lot. And um, I see it, you know, teaching junior high and high school, I see it all the time mm. um, where where kids and this doesn't really go away so much as as adults. I think we learn um, social coping mechanisms or more polite ways of disguising mm. our discomfort and our fear. But but kids are really not not when they're very young, most kids, but as they get a little bit older, um, there is a, a fear that's involved in negotiating with someone of special needs. And I don't really understand that. I don't, the only thing that I can think of is, uh, we do tend as human beings to look at terrible things that happen to other people or things that we judge to be horrible things that happen to them. And then try to find ways to keep that away from us as if, sure. um, uh, you know, so that couldn't happen to me. And, yeah. and you, we do, we see this in our social interactions uh, as well. When um, a horrible thing happens to somebody, one of the first things we do is we look around for, well, why did it happen to them? Like, right. What did that person do? So that I can feel safe that it won't happen to me. And Charlotte is able to get past that and, and look at, the person and try to connect with the person that is actually in the shell, so to speak, whereas Mackenzie is not able to get past that and, and really just sees, um, sees the external. And I think, I, I think that there's, you know, as you talk about particularly young people and, and, uh, you know, that there are some things that hopefully we learn as we grow into adulthood and, and, but in those younger ages in particular, it's hard to be vulnerable. They're not, they're not comfortable with their own vulnerability. And, and I wonder if some of that is that, that inability to, to be vulnerable and to feel uh, comfortable with, 
with discomfort because certainly that's not something that that teenagers are particularly good at, right? No, uh, generally speaking, not. Um, but which makes it all remarkable, all the more remarkable when you find um, yeah. someone that does. And absolutely. And, but but just in general, I I don't know. I'm actually really hopeful about this generation. A lot of people like to beat up on the on the young generations. I mean, every generation. What's the how the song goes? Every generation blames the one before. <laughs> um, and, and but that goes both ways. And and uh, and I just, I don't see that at all. I I I. I really think this this rising generation. I think some of this generation is the best I've ever seen, and I'm really I'm really hopeful that there's much more Charlotte in this generation than there is Mackenzie. Yeah. And I think I wanted to capture some of that at least in uh, in the piece here. In not only is Norman shocked that someone's taking the time to try and to reach into his world, but that it is a source of wonder and delight to Charlotte to be able when she does make the connection that there are signals mm-hmm. coming back out to her. She's seeing things in a different way. The world mm-hmm. is not as she thought it was because for a moment she's able to see it through Norman's eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And, and I like that uh, it is ultimately hopeful uh, in spite of, you know, the tone all along with the rundown aquarium and the, you know, it just, he's, he's connected somewhat to his mom, but even that there are some things that she doesn't quite get there. There are times that she doesn't quite pick up on everything or meet all of his needs in the moment, you know, where she misunderstands something he's trying to communicate. And, and, um, and so having sort of this, these kind of misfires up until that, that moment there where he and Charlotte have made that connection and he's calling to the shark and the shark is coming. And, um, you know, it's, it's a great moment of, of empowerment for him connection between the two of them. Yeah. Um, and there is a sort of a paranormal element to, to this as well, that Norman is, and, and this is something I like to leave open as well. I, I write a lot of um, cross-genre type stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I, um, I am a fan of the idea that there are more things in the world than are dreamt of in our philosophy. I am a believer in a supreme being. I am a believer in God. And um, that opens up a large number of possibilities like that. But I also believe that... It, that it's possible that there's a whole lot more going on sometimes than uh, than we think is is happening. How can we be so arrogant as to think that we actually understand things in a universe of this vast? I just think it's impossibly arrogant for us to think, well, we, we solved all of those things and we, we know how all those things work. I I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not saying that I think a lot of kids with cerebral palsy have telekinetic connections with uh, with fish. That's not what I'm saying, but I am saying that there are possibilities. There are different kinds of communication and different kinds of awareness and different levels of understanding that we're not necessarily connected to in our modern age. And maybe we should have a little respect 
for the idea that we don't know everything. And it, I mean, it's taking that uh, perception a step further, being able to now see things from Norman's perspective and, and recognize how much more is going on beneath the surface than mm. what he's able to communicate. Now you're just introducing the idea that maybe there's even more. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and, and some of this, there's a whole lot of things um, sort of woven into this, some of it on purpose and some of it I read back and think, wow, um, <laughs> that's very cool. I did not mean to do that. Um, but whale sharks are terribly misunderstood and heavily overfished and, and butchered because they're scary because they look like sharks and they are sharks, but they don't have teeth. They're not, um, mm. they're, they're, um, plankton eaters. They're, they, they can't hurt you. They, they can't bite you. Um, they, but they're enormous. Whale sharks are much bigger than, uh, than a regular shark. And the, you know, seeing one of these things come cruising at you out of the depths, you would shoot first and ask questions later. I have no doubt. <laughs> um, but that was sort of, I thought, a kind of a metaphor as well for what was going on with Norman. And here's this um, shark that everybody's afraid of and that it strikes terror into Mackenzie. She doesn't understand it. She doesn't know anything about it. And instead of engaging with it in a, in a way that would teach and inform, she shrieks and runs and uh, and panics, whereas Norman sees a, in this shark a kindred spirit. This is, you got the same problem I've got. Like you, mm-hmm. Everybody looks at you and completely misunderstands your nature, has no idea what's going on in your head, but I get you because here I am, same thing is happening with me. People don't get what's going on with me. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, I think I think we've talked about everything with this piece that questions that I had. Is there anything else that you wanted to point out before we move on from it? Um, only that having done this once, um, I did it again in another piece uh, for another uh, for another anthology, um, this time with a, a special needs kid who is mildly Down syndrome. And mm. um, uh, I know that um, in the 21st century, we talk a lot about allowing people to tell their own stories. Um, Mm -hmm. But having talked to a number of people who um, work with special needs kids and who've um, spent a lot of time getting to know them and and understanding and appreciating their strengths, uh, I hear from them how grateful they are that um, more and more now we're willing to to try to tell their stories because for many of them, they can't. Those stories cannot be told in a way that we can understand, in a way that we can appreciate. If there are people who are listening to this uh, podcast who are, who are writers, I, I encourage you to kind of grapple with that a little bit and um, looking even into um, not just the disadvantaged or the marginalized communities, but also the ones whose stories are lost or who people who are unable to tell their stories just because of the nature of how difficult it is to communicate um, and see if there aren't some really valuable things there that could help to make us not only better writers, but also better people. Mm, I love that. Uh, is there anything that you're working on right now that you want to share with our listeners? Uh, wow. Um, I'm in the process of finishing some uh, very challenging edits on a ghostwriting project. Uh, it's a teen choose your consequences uh, story that I'm ghostwriting for an author that you probably would have heard of. Um, that's been kind of fun. Uh, I've done some ghostwriting projects in the past and 
Uh, those are very challenging in lots of different ways. Um, I am wrapping up the edits on the second of the Trinity Flynn novels. Trinity Flynn is sort of a butt-kicking version of uh, Nancy Drew. Uh, it's <laughs> set in the 1920s, uh, and they're all true crime um, murder mysteries. Super so these cool. are they take place during actual events. So the first one was a Christmas Day murder in 1920, and uh, this one is a kidnapping of a five-year-old boy by the beginnings of the Italian mafia on the Lower East Side of Manhattan uh, in the summer of 1921. Um, just super fun uh, to write. And I'm, uh, I'm hopeful that that book should be up for Christmas and then it should be available for sale at dramaticpress.com and we'll hope that um, it's a series that runs for a long time. This is just the second book and uh, there are many, many more in the works. So. Fantastic. And we'll be sure to get that uh, link in the liner notes too, so that uh, listeners can go there. So listeners, uh, well, first, thank you, Christopher, for joining me today. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. Certainly always a pleasure, Karen. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to the Shark Waves back, uh, be sure and get on Verso and give it an upvote so that other readers can discover it as well. And as always, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of First Fiction. If you'd like to hear more great fiction from the best emerging authors, be sure to subscribe. To learn more about this podcast and the authors and stories we promote, visit verso.inc. That's verso.inc.